Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. The scenes coming out of Afghanistan over the past week have raised a lot of concerns about the future of the country under a new version of Taliban rule. The speed of the government's fall in Kabul took many of us by surprise, but it only adds weight to the many questions that have been asked about the point of Australia's involvement in the 20-year war. Of course, Australia's withdrawal is not the end of the story, and with many Afghans living in our communities, there are calls for more action and support to to assist those impacted by the Taliban's takeover. Shamsia Hussainpour is a final year journalism student, podcast host and producer. She lived under the Taliban until she was four years old and eventually relocated to Australia with her family in 2007. And we're very grateful to have Shamsia on the line. Thank you so much for talking to us today on Triple R. Thank you so much, John, for having me. And so what has your experience been like over the past week as you've comprehended the news coming out of Afghanistan? Well, there are no words to describe on how we feel and how helpless and, you know, um, we all feel as a community and especially those of us who have families uh, still living in there. Um, so this week, you know, and for myself, like till, till last Sunday, I had a bit of hope that the the country, at least the capital, wouldn't fall uh, to the Taliban um, and that was the moment that I guess my whole heart collapsed and that 20 years of, um, of the Afghan people's hard work and sacrifice um, all, all just, you know, went completely to waste, I guess. Um, yeah, ever since, things have been extremely hard for all of us, uh, you know, in Afghanistan and outside of the country. So, how, yeah. how, how, how much contact um, can you have at the moment with family that are in Afghanistan? So till mid this week, we were able to, uh, you know, the contact wasn't obviously, uh, um, hasn't been very good um, for, especially for my family who are uh, living, you know, uh, other in, in other districts than Kabul. Um, you know, there were days we couldn't even reach them, but the, the contacts haven't been that good um, uh, people are scared to talk to anyone. People are scared to even pick up a phone call from a foreign country. People are scared to speak out. Um, and sometimes we can't even reach them because the lines are all off. Uh, you know, it, So the contacts haven't been uh, easy or accessible. Um, and it's been almost three days that we haven't been able to reach to our family um, in the district of Ghazni. Mm. Yeah, and uh, I mean, there's obviously a lot of coverage focusing off on on Afghanistan at the moment with the the fall of of Kabul. But there's been obviously quite a lot happening in in recent weeks and months, as well as we've sort of neared that the US and, and Australia's uh, withdrawal from the country. What have you kind of been hearing from from people in the country, you know, family and and so on, about what's been going in those regions outside of of Kabul? So a lot of the regions, uh, you know, outside of Kabul, they, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've 
they've basically surrendered um, themselves to the Taliban because there was no point of fighting. Uh, they were great in numbers. They had the weapons, and we were just defenseless. So it was, if you know, for for our our people in our communities, uh, you know, to fight back, it was just the same as you know entering a suicide mission. Um, so that's why a lot of you know the districts they gave up uh, before even trying. Um, and, uh, you know, people in my hometown, people in my community. Um, so the elders were gathered to, uh, you know, talk to the Taliban about the new rules that they're going to live uh, under. And after the, the meeting, uh, this was a conversation that I had with my dad, who called my uncle uh, back home uh, at the start of this week. And they said that, um, you know, they were, that they threw a big feast for them. They welcomed them into their community. Um, and I was, I, you know, my, I was just filled with a lot of anger and, and disappointment. And I asked my dad, why would they throw a, a feast? Why would they treat them like, like, like they are good, like they are welcoming them? Um, when, you know, for decades they have been mass, you know, causes, uh, you know, numbers of um, genocides to our people, especially to our own tribes. And to which he answered, you know, uh, that's why, because we don't want to be on their, and on their bad side. We, we are defenseless. We don't have any other choice but to, I guess, uh, you know, do what they say and just be, please them in whatever way that we can. Um, we have no other way out. And, you know, there's only uh, limited uh, roads uh, from Kabul to my district. And they're all been um, uh, blocked by the Taliban, so there is no going in or going out from that area. But and, and it's and it's very hard for um, you know those places uh, other than Kabul uh, to see what's happening in there because there's no much coverage. Um, so if you see, the, you know, Kabul is in a going through a lot of um, you know chaotic uh, situation, then imagine, you know what what goes behind this curtain. You imagine what you don't see behind, you know, um, what, what's shown on the camera or what's shown on the media. And I guess that's the scary part because the Taliban are, you know, convincing people on the, on, on the media that they have changed, that, they, that their ways have um, uh, changed, that, they're not, that they will not, uh, you know, take the rights of women um, and they will be bring peace to the country. Uh, but... You know, those those talks are just there uh, for the for the for the media um, to make, uh, I guess, to make an image for themselves that they are the right government for the country. Um, they, and their words will always be just words and just empty words, just like their promise to keep the peace uh, negotiation. You know, after the U.S. withdrew, but what happened as soon as the U.S. and the and its allies withdrew, they started killing. They started, you know. Uh, doing the same thing that they've been doing for the past few decades. I mean, you, you wrote for for the ABC website, and I urge people to to read your piece there, your article. But you you write that for for several months, the Afghan community here in Australia has been seeking to raise awareness of what was happening. The, the story that you just told there, um, as as one of many, I imagine. Um, why do you think so many of us? We're not hearing or not listening a couple of months ago when when you and others were seeking to raise awareness of what was was happening. I think just for anyone, people only hear and tune in um, when it's something big. You know, people are already going and dealing with a lot of things, like with the lockdowns, with COVID, 
And the least thing that they want to hear is another bad news coming from another country that they have nothing to do with. And I think it's easier for them to switch off and, um, you know, ignore what's happening in the world. But obviously for our community and for those who have families, it's not easy to... We don't have that privilege of just switching off um, and ignoring. And that's why, you know, my community, um, for the... You know, for more than two months, we've been begging people on our social media in, in whatever platform that we possibly could. We were begging people, asking them to help us raise awareness. You know, we can't do it on our own. We, there's only, like there's only so much that we can do as a community uh, to get our you know the people the voices of our people heard. And we were literally not getting many responses, uh, at least within my circles and the people that I knew, um, you know, the Afghans that I knew. We were all experiencing the same thing. Just people were just just silent, um, as if you know, as if the Afghans' lives did, didn't matter. As if what what what's happening in in Afghanistan um, uh, is is just I don't know a normal thing. And I think that's the thing that really hurt us the most was that, you know, the silence of, of the world. Um, one, you know, I don't mean to, like, compare the, you know, situations, but I say this because people's, uh, you know, people, people coming together has a lot of power and, and it, it could bring great changes. And like, like what happened in the U.S., you know, last year with um, uh, George Floyd, um, you know, one person changed the law. One person, you know, worked the whole world about what is happening to the black community. If we had the same support, if we had the same people chanting for us and raising our voices, um, I think we would have Afghanistan would have been slightly different than what it is now. And that's what um, hurt us most. That you know, even the people that usually, you know, chant for human rights, women's rights, and children's rights. They were too silent when we were when we were in need of their voices. Um, yeah. yeah, we're speaking with Shamsia Hussein Poor, a final year journalism student at RMIT. She's a Hazara woman who's um, been in Australia since 2007 and, and has written recently um, an article for ABC all about her experience um, and, and reflections on what's happening in Afghanistan with, with the Taliban taking Kabul last week. And I'm interested too, I mean, in, in your position also as, as a journalist and a journalism student and, and ex-producer with the ABC as well. I mean, going forward, you know, when the media spotlight is very much on Afghanistan at the moment and also in terms of, you know, what's happening with Australia's humanitarian intake and so on. But but as some of the, the lights, you know, inevitably fade sort of weeks and months down the track, what's your hope for how the media will cover this into the future? I guess also reflecting on the fact that, that Australia has a, a very, you know, direct interest in this story, given we, were, we had troops on the ground there for, for 20 years and have, you know, many Afghans living in our in our community and, and more to come? I think, Dylan, uh, our biggest fear right now is, you know, yes, right now, as you said, people are tuning in. We're, we're just at the forefront of media and, and the news of what's happening in Afghanistan. Everyone is talking about it. Uh, but, you know, this will fade and eventually after, you know, a week or two or maybe a month, people will eventually stop talking. They will be sick of hearing what's happening in Afghanistan. But those people, those people who are left in Afghanistan, you know, the 35 plus million people who are living in Afghanistan, those are, they will be left uh, voiceless. They will be left under extreme 
brutality and, um, you know, this is human violation. What the Taliban's would do to them, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine my family, especially the younger cousins that I have in there who are the same age as me, who work so hard, uh, you know, to find their voice, their individuality in, within their community, within their nation, and for them to just be imprisoned in their own home, for them to be forced into marriages and just breaks my heart. And I, I guess one thing that I do want from, you know, the world and especially from, you know, the Australian community is don't forget us when the trend ends. Don't forget us when, uh, you know, we're no longer uh, being reported on the news 24-7 because those, those are the times that we need you more than ever, you know. The, what ha what is happening in Afghanistan? This is just the very beginning. Things will only escalate, and things will only get worse from here. Um, you know, the Taliban has a very, very clear agenda, and that is to that is that is to uh, I guess get the world um, give the world an uh, an idea of you know they they're there to make peace. They're there to bring uh, peace to the country. They're there to um, help the country rebuild itself. Um, under their own Islamic law, or under their own, uh, you know, version of Sharia law. Um, and, you know, obviously a lot of people will be eventually convinced that, you know, you know maybe the Taliban are right. Maybe they are there to, uh, to make peace. Maybe they are there to rebuild the country. Um, but once people are convinced, that's when the atrocities, you know, will start to begin. Um, and, and like I said, you know, there are many places that don't get coverage from, uh, you know, that, that, that don't get enough coverage of what's happening in their in, in their um, areas. We we I've seen women, I've seen videos and images of women being uh, whipped in front of, uh, you know, a group of men, and each man is like there's five to six men taking turns to, you know. <sighs> whip a, a single woman. I can't even imagine the pain, and she's not even allowed to scream. That's how voiceless women are in there, and, and people can no longer, people can no longer um, accept to or afford to stay silent. You know, the Afghan people, they, they are very much voiceless now, and we need people to continue to help us, to continue to raise our voices, because this, this isn't it. This, this week is just the first week and the, the, the people's lives will, will be in grave danger, um, especially women and children, until the Taliban are there. So we need people, and especially world leaders, to uh, make changes and to help the people of Afghanistan. We can no longer leave them on their own and, and you know, make them fight their own battles, because this isn't a battle. This is just, this is going to be a, a genocide. Well, you, I mean, you, you speak there about this sort of, well, I guess, it's a narrative that's coming out of the Taliban that you were describing earlier there. And um, you also write about other kinds of narratives that are out there that, you know, Afghanistan is known for its wars and known for its suffering. And there's a sense that because of this, um, the, the kind of the world or the wider community thinks that it's in some way some sort of a thing that happens in Afghanistan. And is it really important that we, we shift that narrative also, you think, Shamsia? Absolutely, yeah, and that you know that's the one thing that I think that's one that's the one of the main reasons why a lot of people chose to ignore what is you know the situation in Afghanistan until it was too late, and and then suddenly everyone woke up. 
was because people thought, you know, oh, yeah, it's just Afghanistan. You know, they're just dealing with another war. It's just, you know, another, um, you know, I don't know, bombing, you know, happening in there, another event. But this is not like the ones that has happened in, previously. This is much worse. And this is this isn't just a group of Taliban, you know, um, climbing the attack. This isn't just a group of Taliban, uh, you know, beheading, uh, you know, five to six people on their way to their home. This isn't, uh, you know, the event where, you know, a bomb blast in, in a mosque or in a shopping center. This is 10 times or 100 times worse. Uh, the Taliban have occupied the whole country. So, you know, before, before them controlling the whole country, things were happening in Afghanistan. Yes, you know, bomb blasts would still be, uh, uh, you know, happening quite significantly. Um, but there were still people like the U.S. troops and its allies and the you know, Afghan government, they were able to step in and, and, and somewhat help out. But now all those helps are gone. And, and people shouldn't just look at Afghanistan as... You know, we we can no longer look at Afghanistan as as a lost cause. If mm. you care about uh, you know human rights, if you care about women's rights and children's rights, then Afghanistan is the place to look at. You know, you you can no longer afford to be selective about who you care about, about what what fits into your narrative about what human rights or women's rights is. And this is and and one thing I don't want to see, and the last thing that we want to hear is people. You know, using this opportunity, using our helplessness and pain to, I guess, increase Islamophobia. This is nothing to do with the Islam that I believe in. This is nothing to do with the Islam that 98% of other Muslims believe in. This is the Islam that, you know, the Taliban and the ISIS and the Al-Qaeda believes in. This is the Islam of where women get beheaded. You know, I, I am a hijabi woman. I, I, I am very, a very religious person, you know, but this is not my Islam. This does not represent me. And instead of making this about, you know, changing the topic of what Islam is and we should eradicate Islam, uh, we should focus on what the issue is, and that is the Islam of the, ex the, ex the extremists. That is the, um, you know, the rule of, uh, you know, the Taliban and, and what they will do to the people of Afghanistan. So I ask everyone that's listening to spread the message and to continue raise awareness, not just for the time being, not just for now, because it's trendy or because it suits us more, most. Mm -hmm. Um, but because, you know, we need you more than ever because this is human crisis. Yeah. Is there any further or additional messages in terms of how people can, I don't know, support organisations who, who, who are assisting Afghans in, in the Australian community or might be sort of lobbying for, for a raise to the humanitarian intake or anything like that? Are there any kind of, um, I guess, final messages for people who are listening and, and may want to do what they can to, to best, um, you know, best, best support the, the cause of Afghans? Absolutely, Dylan. You know, there are several things that you can do. Um, uh, you can keep learning about Afghanistan, keep raising awareness, you know, spread the word uh, uh, within your groups uh, of friends or families and, you know, and help them to raise awareness within their groups and donate to the trust, trusted cause. Um, so, you know, visit your refugee centres and, 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 and see what they, uh, what they are saying and where to go from there. Um, but also help resettle the refugees that are coming in to Australia. You know, they, they're they physically safe, you know, those who arrive in Australia, but they will carry 
a lifetime of trauma and and pain. They've left loved ones behind, so they are, you know, what they will go through is unimaginable. And that, like myself, they will deal with that survivor guilt. Um, so, you know, continue to raise our voices. And if there are any protests happening, obviously legal protests happening across the country, uh, please do attend and, and, you know, help us uh, raise awareness about what is happening in our country. Yeah, well, thank you so much for, for spending so much time with us this morning, Shamsia. It's, um, you know, incredibly important to, to hear your voice and, and many others as well. So really appreciate um, your time and, and all strength to you going forward. And all the best to your thank family, you so Shamsia. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Shamsia Hussein Poor, their final year journalism student at RMIT, and um, she has been writing about her, her experience and her reflections on what's going on in Afghanistan at the moment. You can read her in the ABC. I think one of her articles came out just a couple of days ago and, um, and well, worth, well worth a read to, to get a sense of, of those voices we really need to be hearing at this point in time. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. A chorus of voices are calling on the federal government to accept more people fleeing from Taliban-controlled Afghanistan and to offer permanent protection to Afghan asylum seekers already in Australia. David Mann is from Refugee Legal, a treasured long-term contributor to programs here at Triple R, and it's great to speak with you, David. Thanks so much for being there. Uh, good morning and great to be back with you. And so we heard the the government said it will provide visas for 3,000 Afghans this financial year and places uh, that are, those places are going to come from the refugee program, which I understand is capped at um, almost 14,000 people. Uh, you know, look, they've been widely uh, urged to do more. How likely is it, do you think, David, that the federal government will do more and offer further visas given what's going on in Afghanistan right now? Oh, look, I, I, one can only hope that, uh, that the humanitarian intake is lifted very significantly um, and because the initial response from the government is, is woefully inadequate. In fact, I would say beyond unconscionable um, uh, in the circumstances. Uh, and and uh, so really uh, the, Australian, the Australian government uh, should be acting urgently to lift that intake Certainly, they've they've flagged they've flagged you know sort of during last week they sort of shifted from just saying an initial three thousand places within the existing program so that's not even additional places to um, the kind of language which suggests that they're open to more um, they started you know I think the slogan was um, you know three thousand is. Is, is a floor, not a ceiling. Um, but beyond the slogans, we need to actually uh, hear from them about what they're actually going to do. And but I, you know what? I, I really do think this is a moment in our history where um, it's, it really is a, a, a fundamental um, uh, obligation, I think, of, of leaders, parliamentarians, um, leaders across the country, uh, to call for a, a, a strong and, and, and urgent humanitarian response that. Uh, that is needed, and that is, uh, amongst other things, uh, a significant lift to them. And the kind of numbers that I think we should be looking at are, uh, as a beginning are really uh, 20,000 additional places, not not within the program, which only goes you say, up to almost 14,000, 13,750. But we need to be um, a country, we have every capacity to do so, uh, and, um, and we have deep connections in relation to the situation in Afghanistan, of course. Uh, 
Um, so many people have family. Uh, there are deep connections in terms of um, NGOs, um, foreign aid workers. Um, there's family, of course, as I mentioned. So many other connections um, which call for, for our response. But, but you know, it, it, it is now that it needs to happen. And can I ask, David, I mean, in terms of our humanitarian visa intake, has that been affected by COVID-19? Because, I mean, as you know, I, I kind of um, was interested that the 3,000 um, number was taken from the existing uh, allocation for humanitarian visas. But has that changed or has there been a, a substantial reduction in that, given that, that movement has been so limited over the past couple of years? Well, there's been two things. There's actually been a reduction in the actual program um, by the government. So they've actually reduced the program in the last couple of years. It was, it, it was over, over 18,000. It's been reduced back to 30, where it used to be quite a number of years ago, 13,000 somewhere. So that's one, so 13,750. Um, so that's one, that, that's been this government's policy is to actually reduce the numbers. But the other thing that has happened in the last couple of years in, in the context of COVID uh, has been that places haven't under that under the existing intake haven't been filled, so that they haven't actually been reaching uh, the numbers uh, under the intake uh, that were allocated. So there's those two uh, two, two themes at the moment. Uh, and but but what really needs to happen here is, as I say, is a is is, a, is an urgent call across the country for the government to do more far more um, than is currently the case. And we're hearing, I mean, those, we're hearing those calls from all, all corners of the, of the country, it seems. And I really want to hear about um, those that are Afghans who are here on temporary visas and, and what their yeah. situation yeah. is. But before we kind of go to that, it, it seems to me that as soon as at the moment, as soon as something like this happens, we have very bureaucratic discussions rather than ones based on, on human rights and our international Obligations, and I, I wondered. I mean, do you have a sense of why that seems to be? Yeah, well, I, I think there's a number of reasons. I think you're absolutely spot on on that, and uh, it's another um, element of deep concern that needs to be um, responded to, and actually that we need to lift well beyond. Um, but I just should say on the, on the, the lift and the intake um, that Canada has announced that it will be taking twenty thousand additional people from um, the Afghan crisis, uh, and. Uh, and uh, the UK have also done it, although the UK, in announcing their 20,000, um, we, we should be cautious about adopting that model because it looks like it's going to be 20,000 over quite a number of years, perhaps five years. Um, the Canadian model is one to, to, uh, to look at very carefully in terms of the kind of uh, responses that uh, would be a good start. But this, this question about uh, you know, bureaucracy... Um, so often we see in these situations, um, you know, red tape, these sort of conversations, which essentially leave us in this sort of vortex of, um, you know, discussing red tape. Can we do it? You know, these sort of questions. Oh, but we've got a, a, a process. Will our process allow it? Well, look, of course, in any emergency situation like this, it's actually an emergency. It's a crisis. Um, of course, um, processes need to be adjusted accordingly to respond to the fundamental predicament of people uh, who are at serious, significant, imminent risk of, of, you know, of brutal persecution by the Taliban. And uh, there are so many people uh, in Afghanistan who are in that situation right now. So getting in caught up, tangled in red tape discussion about bureaucratic processes seriously 
not going to in, come even close to adequately responding in the way that is needed. And, uh, and so, again, there's a lot of work being done at the moment. We're, we're very involved in that at the moment, exactly in that. Um, uh, in that discussion about um, lifting beyond that, uh, there has been some progress, but there needs to be a lot more. And it sounds like time is, is very much of the essence as well. On that issue of, of Afghans living in Australia on temporary visas, I think I read that there's more than 4,000, uh, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but obviously that the situation in Afghanistan has changed quite drastically. I mean, it was already um, you know, particularly challenging for persecuted um, uh, groups such as the Hazaras, but given the change in, in how the country looks at the moment, what does the future hold for those who are on temporary visas in Australia? Well, that stands with government policy. Um, but all, all, there is no change. Uh, there is no change in government policy, which means that people who um, uh, are in those situations in Australia that is, Afghans who've been granted protection in Australia, as well as Afghans still going through the process, the government has refused to change its policy in relation to them. That means that, it, as it stands, that anyone that's been granted temporary protection, the best that they can do is remain in perpetual limbo, um, only able to reapply for refugee status uh, down the track. And some are already reapplying, having already had a three-year visa and having to replead their case. Extraordinarily, I mean, the fact that we're even talking about people in this situation having to replead their case um, to be recognised as a refugee is somewhat um, strange, I would say, if not extraordinary and bizarre. But what we're calling on uh, is the government to fundamentally change its policy by granting permanent protection to all Afghans who are here on temporary visas, given the situation. There hasn't been a shift yet, um, but there are certainly growing calls for that to happen. I note that uh, uh, the opposition, the uh, Labor, have uh, said that if they were in government, that's what they would do. That is, uh, that is the most obvious and proper response to the situation because it, it is inconceivable uh, that people um, who are here on temporary visas um, could return to Afghanistan any time in the foreseeable future. Yeah, I, I was having, um, having a look at the Department of Home Affairs website just to see what sort of information was out there in relation to the situation in Afghanistan. And there was a line that, that, um, that reads, Afghan citizens currently in Australia on temporary visas will be supported by the Australian government. So given that there hasn't really been any, any substantial change, what does that mean? Well, it's exactly the same response that they came up with, um, mealy-mouthed and, and sort of meaningless response that they came up with recently in relation to people who are here from Myanmar uh, in the midst of the crisis in Myanmar. And it, uh, it was sort of... It, it was full of, full of um, platitudes and, and, and completely... Um, lacking in any detail, and um, and, uh, and perhaps not even platitudes, but sort of a, sort of a vague reference to people being supported while they're here is not what is needed. What is needed is a is a guarantee uh, with a, with con- with a, with the concrete with something concrete behind it. That's the grant of permanency here for people um, from Afghanistan, um, because if they don't have that, and we're we're working with so many people uh, in the Afghan community and have for decades. They are petrified and living now not only with the, the, in the cycle of uncertainty and fear that they have um, been, been under for years in Australia, but, it's, but of course, that has been acutely, uh, yeah, there's been an acute sort of um, 
uh, increase in anxiety and distress over the situation um, in Afghanistan, and, of course. And also what's happening now, too, to add to that. And I wonder, and we're with yeah. David Mann, he's with Refugee Legal. But it's been compounded, Talia, I guess, is the point. Oh, People yeah, I mean, it's unimaginable. People need to know that they're going to be secure in the future, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And, um, yeah, we're speaking with David about the, the status of long-term asylum seekers uh, from and refugees from Afghanistan. And I, I want to ask about a couple of other issues, too, David, around family reunion for those people on temporary visas because that's been um, asked a lot of, of, of government and I haven't been quite clear on on the legal situation for people wanting to seek family, family reunion if they are on a temporary visa here. But also, um, are some of the Afghans that are, are seeking asylum here in Australia or already classed as refugees part of that cohort that were on boats that the federal government said will never be resettled here? Is that some of this complication happening as well? Yeah, well, absolutely. And uh, the, the, the policy, the, the, the government policy for some years now has, uh, in relation to family reunion, has effectively said and there's this direction, again, going to your point about bureaucraties, I mean, there's this sort of what's called a ministerial direction, direction 80, if you hear of it. And basically, it sounds fairly innocuous, but is, um, has, it sort of has had a deep and, 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 and extraordinarily harmful impact on people. Because what it says is that if effectively, if you came by boat uh, and, then, and then get permanency, uh, become a permanent resident, you are right down the bottom in terms of priority for family reunion, that is um, sponsoring loved ones, including spouse, you know, spouse and children. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, it's, it effectively is a, a, a penalty or a punishment for having come by boat, um, which for many people endures, you know, you know, years and years and years after having arrived. If you become an Australian citizen, um, then you go up in terms of priority. But again, um, it's been extremely difficult for people to get family reunion, even in that context. But if you if you haven't got Australian citizenship, you've got next to no chance. And so there's that restrictiveness. But that that is on top of um, the ordinary. Even if you're not in that category, um, then it's it's it, it, there for so many people. It can be years and years and years, if not um, if not decades, uh, trying to get family reunion of loved ones. And this is so. Again, there needs to be an urgent and fundamental shift. I mean, the government has um, said in their, in their sort of official statements that one of the priority categories for um, additional places, or not additional places, the places that they've said that in that 3,000 that they've announced, one of the priorities will be um, family members. Uh, they've also referred to um, particularly vulnerable groups, women, girls, Hazaras, um, but people from the Hazara ethnicity. Uh, but coming back to the family union point, again, there needs to be a, a fundamental shift in government policy if it is going to respond meaning, meaningfully um, to ensuring that, uh, you know, that relatives at risk can be brought here. Um, and, and what about those processes for, for assessing who should be prioritised, David? Because we know that, you know, people who have come to Australia by boats, you know, asylum seekers and, and refugees that have been sort of left languishing in detention for years on end while their their, their process and their application kind of goes, is, is, is checked by the government. And there's often sort of very little updates on, on sort of where that's at. How quickly can some of these assessments be made in this circumstance, given that the very dire situation in Afghanistan at the moment? Well, the delays, as you say, Dylan, have been inordinate. I mean, uh, we've discussed this before, that some people have, having arrived in Australia by boat, you know, perhaps eight or more years ago, some of those people were only, um, are only being interviewed about their 
about their, getting their first interview with the government about their fears now, you know, to this year. Um, others um, are going through the process, uh, still going through the process, having arrived that, that long ago. Uh, and so the delays are extraordinary and inordinate again. And um, the answer to your question about how could that be resolved or what could be done is that those cases could be... Could be um, process swiftly. I mean, that's what could happen. They could be given priority and process swiftly. And that's what should happen. But can I refer there's another group uh, in Australia who have been refused, this is Afghans, that were refused protection as refugees in the process and uh, and literally uh, are in limbo in Australia having, having appealed their cases. And just to give you a sense about an appeal of a case if it ends up in the courts at the moment, it can be um, several years, it can be two or more years until someone even gets their first directions hearing in the court, which is really a timetabling of their case for the future. So we're looking at years of delay in the courts as well for people who came to Australia as Afghans seeking protection and were refused by the government. Um, and what we're calling on the government to do is to urgently reassess their cases, given the situation in Afghanistan, effectively start just re reopen the case with regard to the situation now, um, to allow someone to plead their case for, for protection as a refugee. And we're hearing um, some of the, the kind of language that we're used to, I guess, around um, people smugglers and this idea around security checks and things like this in the current circumstances. How, I mean, I've asked you this before, David, but how potent is this language um, these days? We've heard it around elections and so forth, and I know we've got an election coming up early next year, but it's kind of such a distasteful idea that that's how come it's coming out. Like, it... It, this this worldview or this security lens, I guess, that we, we put on resettlement, is that an expectation of the Australian people, do you think? Or, or why do we hear that language? Yeah, look, it's very difficult to know, isn't it? I mean, we had a week last year in our history as a country where in the midst of uh, the crisis in Afghanistan, um, we had our Prime Minister stand up in response to it and amongst various things that he said, he actually referred to uh, the uh, people having arrived by boat and effectively uh, the fact that the government would be maintaining its its um, its, its sort of punitive policies in relation to those people you know, from Afghanistan. And I have to say again, I just think that you know, it's beyond unconscionable um, that I took to have done that in that context. And... Um, and the question really that you asked, I think, is so central, and that is what, what, what is being made of that by, um, by, by the public in Australia? Um, my sense is that, um, that um, public sentiment, to the extent that one can, can understand precisely you know, what people are thinking out there, um, that there's very strong public sentiment in support um, of people from Afghanistan who are uh, people who are there um, in serious danger, as well as many, many people in the, in the community in Australia, Afghans in the, in the, and uh, so I, I think the fundamental point is um, it was a very dark moment um, that, when that comment was made, but uh, I think that the fundamental issue is to rise above it as a country. We need to, it needs to be right across the country um, that people um, raise their voices uh, and uh, and call for a strong and swift and a humanitarian response. And I, just coming back to that, 
I was just going to say, um, David, I, this yeah. is how come we, we ask you to come and speak on Triple R is to keep us in that hope space. There is hope. Yeah. And, you know, I think people in, in Perth where uh, people can actually stand up and, and, and rally in support have done that. I mean, it's more difficult, I guess. I mean, we've seen a petition, 100,000 people have signed it with really prominent people on it as well as members of the community to, to call for more. And I think that space is... is it, it does bore you, even though there's, there's just so much darkness around this issue, I think. And I'll, I was wondering too, too David, yeah. sorry, just, just quickly, but I mean, this week too marks the 20 years since the Tampa incident. And we know, you know, that was, was kind of a turning point in so many ways for the securitisation of the asylum seeker issue. And, and so many of our sort of laws and, and the public discourse that followed on from that has often been pretty ugly. But do you imagine that, that this experience we're going through at the moment, we've sort of, you know, just withdrawn from a war we've been involved in for 20 years. There are people who, who fought in Afghanistan, soldiers who are really quite, you know, disgusted and, and um, you know, feel, feel you know, really, really poorly about just what's happened and, and the lack of um, assistance we've so far applied um, for, for Afghans as well. Do you imagine that this could potentially be a turning point where we start to see more, more compassion maybe in, and a changing of, of some of the policies that have really plagued our, our public discourse for a long time? I absolutely do. I absolutely do. I think there is a very strong groundswell of support for the government to do far more here. Um, it's growing and growing. But, you know, at one level, I don't see it. I see it partly in the context of what you, what you say as a change or a turning point. But I actually think that there is a, a deep reservoir of goodwill and a generosity of spirit across the country which exists. It's about harnessing it. Uh, on these questions, and and I, I think there's a really important marker in our recent history, which is it's so so critical to understanding where we need to head. And that was the Syrian crisis, where initially the Abbott government and the Prime Minister at the time, Tony Abbott, said, "We will take no one, no, no additional, no additional places will be given uh, to Iraqi or Syrians caught up in the crisis." Um, uh, public sentiment uh, was clearly against that. It was growing. There was a groundswell of support. Labor came out, the opposition, and said we should take 10,000 additional people from the crisis. The next day, um, the, the, the Abbott government uh, came out and said, no, 12,000. We're going to take 12,000 additional people. So we shifted almost overnight from the interminable jousting between, uh, between the major parties as to who can be harsher toward refugees to a contest over kindness. It was a sort of a, you know, there was a who could be kinder. And and why is that the case? Well, why I think that's the case is because what not only are governments clearly susceptible to, to public sentiment, we know that, they're very sensitive to it, um, but there is, I think, in our country um, a very, very strong desire uh, to uh, to do more and to... to, to to act in a humanitarian way, which is actually deep in, in, in the tradition of this country. Uh, there have been many examples of it. And now is the moment. I think, though, that one thing we were talking about, you know, across the country, there is a growing, are growing calls. I'll tell you where there isn't at the moment, and I think that this is where things really need to shift quickly, is in Parliament. Um, there's almost no-one in Parliament standing up and calling for a lift in the humanitarian significant lift in the humanitarian intake now for, for, for Afghans. Um, John Alexander came out. He seems to have been the first one to break ranks in government. But we're also looking at the opposition at the moment, who still haven't come out um, with a call for additional places. And, uh, and I think something needs to shift very quickly. 
Uh, I'd like to also see the business community come out, uh, business leaders, uh, the union movement, um, you know, sporting associations, major sporting associations. Yeah, what we need now is urgently, I think, is 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 calls from those major bodies and political parties and the like uh, to come out and uh, harness that community, um, I think that generosity of spirit, um, and uh, and call for a, a major shift now in, well, the, on, in the approach. On that call to action, David, we're going to have to leave it, but it's been great having you on Triple R, um, and you're a really important voice in this, and um, we really appreciate the time you've um, spent with us. Thanks. Yeah, look, it's great. Can I just say one final thing is that uh, on our website, we're, we're, we're inundated at the moment with requests for legal assistance uh, for people both here and also um, people who are in Afghanistan at the moment. Uh, and uh, on our website are details about how to get legal assistance. But, uh, but for anyone that you know who's um, impacted by the um, crisis in Afghanistan, uh, get in contact um, oh. and, we'll, and, we'll, and we'll provide legal help. Um, Fantastic. Um, David Mann, Refugee Legal. Head to the Refugee Legal website for uh, information around legal assistance. Uh, and, and, yeah, that's an invaluable um, source of information, that website. Thanks so much, David. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.